I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Julie Cantor from the UCLA School of Law. Dr. Cantor has written a perspective article on court-ordered health care for pregnant women in the United States. Dr. Cantor, you describe several cases in which pregnant women refused care and were forced by a court to undergo that care anyway. You say that we really don't know how often this happens, but what's your sense from studying these cases of how widespread a practice this is, or even coerced care that doesn't reach the courts? You know, it's really hard to say. There are some different reports, depending on where you're looking for this information. For example, um, in Rachel Roth's book, she talks about uh, interviewing a physician who mentioned 49 or 50 cases of forced care in his own practice. But those cases were, you can't find them in the courts. We have to wonder how often this does go on. And the, the issue is not only the cases where you have court orders, because those you'd be able to find through a public record search. But the question is, coerced care in the clinical setting, how often does it happen where the patient ends up feeling coerced into something that she really didn't want or understand or feel like was was necessary? I've had a few calls in recent months, one that comes to mind from the Sacramento area where a woman was telling me she was trying to find a provider to support her in a VBAC attempt, and she was interviewing a number of providers, and some of them, she, she, according to her, she said that they were so adamant about a repeat C-section that they actually threatened her with a court order. And she pushed back and said, you know, exactly, how are you going to do that? And, of, of course, she didn't end up choosing that provider for her care. But the, the issue is what's really going on here with the delivery of care and the relationships and the, the trust between a patient and, and a doctor. So the, the question is, it's really it's difficult to say how often this happens. I have sort of a, a gut sense, which isn't science, but it's a gut sense that it happens um, surprisingly often and maybe not to the level of seeking a court order, but a discussion that turns on um, coercion in the clinical setting. Physicians that i talked to seem to raise that issue saying that they've had at least one case where they felt like they needed to threaten a, a court order. So it's a, it's really an unknown question. It would be a good research question to study to figure out, you know, how often this, this goes on. But um, there are sort of snippets out there where you can, you can get a sense that it, it happens um, more often than never. And the question is, should it be happening at all? The proponents of forced care argue that the state has an interest in protecting the life and health of a fetus. Legally speaking, does the state or, or physicians or hospitals, in fact, have such an interest? And what would that mean in practical terms? There's language out there in, in cases that go um, coming from the family law area or even in the abortion context, which is uh, uh, different from these forced care cases, but the idea that the state does have interests in the fetus, and there's language in certain cases that suggests that that interest grows as the uh, pregnancy moves along. But the issue here, um, there are two issues. One is, well, does that mean that physicians and hospitals should be asserting the state's interests? And there's an argument that that's actually an inappropriate role for physicians and hospitals because it's a conflict of interest. You can't both represent the state and represent the, the patient, the pregnant woman, when the state's interests may be adverse to the, a pregnant woman in a case where the state is going to assert some kind of um, interest on behalf of the, the fetus. But in, in practical terms, the, the question is, how far does that go? How far does a state's interest in the well-being of a, a fetus, and say it's a fetus, even a term fetus, how, how far does that go? Um, if you look to 
situations that are in the literature where people assert an, an analogy and they try to explain why the state's interest doesn't go toward the point to the point of forced care, forced surgery, forced intervention for a pregnant woman. One of the arguments you see, in addition to the arguments that I touch on in my in my uh, perspective piece, one of the arguments is this kidney transplant example, and people often say, well, the state doesn't knock on, uh, you know, the door of your house and take a father or a mother and force that mother or father to give a kidney to a child who's dying from renal failure. So you assume that the father or the mother is a perfect match, and you have a child, a living child who needs a kidney transplant. The state doesn't um, take out the kidney forcibly from the parents and then put it into the child. And so the idea is that interests are our, our interests in bodily integrity and autonomy and our, our right to refuse uh, medical care and our right to do as we will with our own bodies extends even to parents. And so the question then is, why wouldn't it extend to a pregnant woman? The analogy is, is similar. If you can't um, save a child who's already born by forcing um, a father or a mother to undergo forcible surgery to give over a part of their body to that child, then why are we doing the same thing with pregnant women? So that's that's one issue. And then another issue that people bring up is if the state does have interest in the fetus, where do those interests go? Where do they end? And people say um, that there is, of course, a slippery slope issue are we going to be forcing people to take prenatal vitamins? You know, are we going to be doing directly observed therapy for, for that? But a little less sort of alarmist is the idea of fetal surgery and people really questioning whether are, are women going to be um, required to undergo surgery for the sake of their fetus. In other words, if you have to um, undergo surgery yourself in order to have a a pediatric surgeon access the fetus, is that something that we're going to then require? You know, how far does this go? And so people say, well, we have to go back to that, the autonomy idea and that right to be let alone, really that Brandeis, Justice Brandeis's idea that he wrote about um, so eloquently, that, that right to be let alone as one of the primary drivers of a free society. And um, again, that kidney transplant example, if we can't do that with parents, then how can we just treat women in a special category uh, even if a fetus has interest, you can't forget that the fetus is inside of another person. As you say, we shouldn't conflate the forced care issues with abortion issues, but is there a similar political or legal impulse at work? Yeah, people have um, pointed out that a lot of the the legislation that you're seeing now about um, personhood legislation, uh, saying, you know, life begins at a certain point, life begins at conception, and then trying to have legal rights flow from that. The, the issue is, and people call it the fetal rights movement, and from a practical standpoint, it's really difficult to reconcile and to have these two sets of, of rights um, equal to each other as a, as a practical matter. So, for example, one of the cases that I mention is the case in um, the Pennsylvania case of Amber Marlowe, and she was the woman who was attempting to deliver her seventh baby, and the hospital and its physicians and experts said that she wasn't a candidate to deliver vaginally, and they um, obtained a court order that we have on the New England Journal of Medicine website that uh, people can review. And the, the issue there is that um, if a if the fetus has rights that can trump its mother's rights, 
to review surgery to bodily integrity to autonomy and you treat the fetus as a separate person with separate legal rights, um, some people say that what we're really going to have is this situation where women become um, subordinate to the state and they can become essentially, and, and others have, have mentioned this phrase, um, incubators for the state. So that's really the issue when you have these the fetal rights movement and if fetuses are separate people with separate legal rights, the issue is where the fetus resides and if it resides in another person's body, what rights then are diminished um, because the person is, is pregnant. So there there is an overlap there in the fetal rights movement. And in fact, John and Amber Marlowe um, marched for uh, in support of the pro-choice movement um, a number of years ago, and they wrote about it on the National um, Advocates for Pregnant Women website because they were really concerned about this idea of um, fetal rights usurping the right of women to decide uh, what to do with their own bodies and how that would then usurp the right to make choices about medical care during your pregnancy. Do you anticipate that the use of coerced care will increase? It's hard to say, and I think that the issue is how do we explain this issue to people and say as a matter of, of ethics, medical ethics, and then also as a matter of law, um, that we shouldn't be heading in this direction and we really want to pull back from, from the brink here. You know, I think it's a, it's a question of where are the politics in this country going, where is the fetal rights movement going, where is the birth, uh, the birth justice movement going what kinds of rights are women going to be able to secure or continue to have during their pregnancies and, and also their labor and delivery. I, mean, I would certainly hope not. And the idea with this article, there have been a number of articles on this issue out there for, for decades, but I think it's important to bring it back to the national debate and say that this is not a direction that we want to be going for medical reasons, uh, for ethical reasons, and for legal reasons. And we need to really re- uh, educate people. We need to be discussing this. Um, we need to have people in power say that this is not the way to go. I mean, I remember during medical school that I thought that the most um, powerful messages often came from the attendings, the department chiefs or chairs, and uh, the chief residents. Those were really the people who you looked up to and the people in power. And if those people are going to be saying this is not what we do for, and they can articulate the reasons why we don't do it to explain to people who look to them for training and for education, I think will go a long way in combating this problem. There are circumstances beyond pregnancy, for example, certain mental health problems, where Americans are subject to forced care. In your view, are any of those appropriate or legal? Well, the difference with some of those situations um, that immediately come to mind, like the mental health issue, is you have the question of competence. And people who are um, incompetent, mentally incompetent or um, incompetent, you know, physically they are um, comatose, for example, and they come in through the emergency department. You don't know their wishes. In, in those instances, the idea is that we act in their best interests. We use um, a substituted judgment form of decision-making because they're incompetent. Now, the, the difference here is that you have women who are adults and who are competent, and one of the core tenets of both American law and 
modern American medical ethics is that people of adult years and sound mind have a right to determine what shall be done with their own bodies. And that's just paraphrasing from the Schloendorf case written by uh, an opinion by Justice um, Cardozo, who was on the highest court of New York at the time and then later was elevated to the United States Supreme Court. So it's this idea of competence versus incompetence. Um, as when um, medical care, forced medical care could be appropriate. And there's another instance that comes to mind with children, for example. Courts have held that um, parents may be free to refuse care and make martyrs of themselves, but they're not free to do so with their children, that we have an interest in children being able to reach adult age so they can make decisions for themselves. There are some other ideas that come to mind about communicable diseases and public health, but even in, in all of these instances, there is a process in place and one of the things that's really striking about the forced care cases for the pregnant women is the lack of um, due process, the lack of um, an, an advocate for them, the lack of being able to cross-examine witnesses, being able to um, bring an expert to testify on, on your behalf or present the other side of the medical evidence, for example, in in the Samantha Burton case, one of the Florida cases that I mentioned, nobody really was there. Well, nobody was there in the hearing to talk about the problems with bed rest and the lack of evidence to support bed rest and the risks to Samantha that bed rest would present. So you have um, really the, the deck is, is very stacked in these um, forced care cases. And again, you don't have people who are um, incompetent. One of the striking things in that's been written about a lot of these cases is that these women are, um, as a general matter, not incompetent, and in fact, their competence isn't even questioned. So again, there are certain instances, but the question would be sort of a competency question, an emergency exception to informed consent would be another one, and then there could be some kind of a communicable disease or a public health um, approach for that you could argue there's a forced care issue there, but you could also argue that those people should just be isolated and they should still retain the right to bodily autonomy and integrity. Thank you, Dr. Cantor. Sure. Thanks so much for having me.